<clears throat> this summer we've been in a series in our preaching where we've been talking about different themes in the Christian life. Uh, we've been talking about uh, different uh, topics, different doctrines, different things. Last week we talked about sanctification, which sanctification is this process through which God actually makes us holy, this work that He's up to in us, transforming us into the image of Christ. This week we're going to talk about justification, another big word, uh, another concept closely related uh, to sanctification. Actually, sanctification, uh, I'm sorry, justification precedes sanctification. In other words, justification is this act of God where He declares the sinner as righteous in His sight. And sanctification flows from justification. So we're, we're inverting things this week in talking about justification. So justification, quite simply, is God's declaring sinners as righteous in His sight based completely on the work of Christ. And so we're going to get into the passage in a minute and see how Paul fleshes that out for us. But before we do, I want us to think of justification a little bit more broadly. In other words, justification is not just a theological concept, just not something we see in the Bible, just not something that pertains to our relationship with God. Justification is something that we all do in all kinds of ways in our life. So think about it more broadly. Your justification is whatever you look to to justify your existence. It's your boast. It's what you're boasting in. It's what you look to in your life and you say, I'm accepted because of this. I am right because of this. This is my identity. This is my standing. And so viewed from that way, we see that there's all kinds of things in our life that we tend to use to justify ourselves. We justify ourselves almost as automatically as we breathe. So I want us to look more broadly first before we get into our passage. A good example of this was uh, from whenever I was in seminary. Our most dreaded class in seminary was not, as you might expect, Greek and Hebrew, which was quite painful, but it was, in fact, preaching class. It was the most gut-wrenching, anxiety-inducing class that you could possibly have because, you see, we were all aspiring preachers. And if you discover that you cannot preach and you're an aspiring preacher, you've got big problems. And so this class, there was a lot riding on this class, at least to us. And so this is how the class would work. The class was about 12 students, uh, your peers, your classmates, and you come together and everybody take turns coming and preaching a sermon to the class. The most difficult, the most fearful assignment that we had in that class was one that my professor Steve Brown used to call the pastor just got sick assignment. And this is how it would work. You would show up to class thinking you were off the hook, thinking you had nothing to worry about, and he would walk in and say, guys, I just got some bad news. The pastor just called. He's sick. The service starts in 10 minutes. You've got to preach. Here's a passage. Go out into the hall and come back in and preach. And so this assignment would seize you with fear. In fact, we would come to class worrying that this would be a day where I would be called to preach for the sick pastor. And um, so this class, what it would do inside of us was so interesting. Leading up to a class where you're preaching, you would be filled with anxiety. You would pour over your sermon. 
hours and hours and hours trying to get it just right, trying to perfect it in every way, trying to control it so that, so that you would appear to be good at this thing. And walking away from class, you would be re-examining everything that you said and you'd be going back through all the comments everybody made. It produced so much anxiety and so much fear. Now, why did it do that? Why did it stir us up so much? Well, it wasn't because it was an interview. There was any kind of a job writing on this thing. It was just practice. There was nothing writing on it, and, and it wasn't because your classmates were harsh on you, because they weren't. Oftentimes, we were gracious with one another, probably because we didn't want the others to tear into us. So why did it stir us up so much? Well, this is why. Because that was our justification. That was the area that we were looking in in our life to say, I matter because of this. In other words, I might not be able to build a house. I might not be able to run a business or make a lot of money. But I can get up in a pulpit and I can preach. Now, that might not sound like much to you. But that was our justification. That was what our boast was. The thing that we're looking at and saying, I'm acceptable because of this. This is what I'm boasting in. This is my standing. This is my identity. So what about for you? What is it for you that is your boast? What do you look to in your life to justify your existence? To say, I matter because of this. I'm acceptable, I'm acceptable because of this. Well, ask yourself some questions like, in what area of my life am I most critical of others and how they do things? In what area of my life am I so dogmatic about my strategy or my particular way about going about something, my technique? In what area of my life am I most defensive? Am I most unable to receive the criticism of others? In what area of my life do I find myself competing with other people? and comparing myself to others? In what area of my life do I feel like an expert in that area? See, for most of us, the area of our justification is our vocation. Because it's so easy for us to make our identity what we do. So imagine, for instance, if you're a mom, imagine a group of your peers, other moms your same age, come to your house one day and observe you parenting your children throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, they give you feedback on what happened that day. What would that be like for you? Or imagine you're a businessman and some other peers who are in business were going to come and they were going to watch the way that you conducted your business. And then at the end of the day, give you some advice, your peers. Or a builder. Say some other builders were to come and examine your work and at the end of the day, just say what they saw and what they thought about it. And it goes on and on for whatever it is you do. It would be terrifying. It would do all kinds of stuff inside of you because it's your identity, because it's what you're using to justify yourself. For others of us, it's not vocation. It's things like something you're good at, like a sport or a particular hobby you really delight in doing, you really think you're great at. Or it might be a particular group of friends that you're a part of. Or it might even be particular relationships in your life, like your in-laws. Is that a tricky dynamic for anybody? Your parents, what your parents think of you, or a friend that you really esteem. As we think about all these areas you see, we're seeking to base our justification on so many different things in our life. 
What is your boast? As we look at this passage, that's what I want you to ask of yourself. What is my justification as we look at this passage? What is it for me that I say, I matter because of this? This is my standing. This is my acceptance. What Paul's going to show us in this passage is that we're boasting about so many different things, but whenever, whenever you see that we, for those who are in union with Christ, are justified in Christ before a holy God, that a holy God has declared us to be righteous forever, whenever you see that and it becomes real for you, it frees you from your boasting. It takes away the boasting in you. So believing your justification frees you from your boasting. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. So let's jump in and look at it together and see what Paul says to us. In verse 9, he picks up, and you can tell he's fleshing out a previous argument. In fact, he's bringing it to a conclusion. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. You see, what he's been doing in chapter 1 and 2 is sealing the deal on this argument right here. In chapter 1, he's been showing how all of humanity is fallen in sin. His big phrase of showing that in chapter 1 is that humanity has served created things rather than the Creator. Another word for that is idolatry. And Paul's saying in chapter 1, it's gotten everybody. It's infected everybody. And then in chapter 2, he moves on to the Jews. It's helpful to understand this distinction by saying the religious and the irreligious. That's kind of what he's doing here. He's saying, you Jews who boast of all that you have, of all of the the rules that you keep and all of the religious adherence that you follow, you who are boasting about that, you do the same things. Though you might not do things outwardly in action, you do them in your heart as you're judging others who do it. And so what he's doing in this argument is he's putting everybody in the same boat. The religious and the irreligious. The moral, those who know how to keep the rules and live a respectable life. And the immoral, who just make a mess out of everything. Paul's saying you're both on the same footing. You're both in the same place. The irreligious and the religious. The insiders and the outsiders. You're all the same before God. He goes into this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Paul begins to quote eight different Old Testament passages just driving this home. That no one is righteous before God. And then he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in His sight by observing the law, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. So this is what Paul's saying. Even though everywhere in the world, this is how it works. We think it works. You do for God and He accepts you. You keep a particular set of rules and live a particular way and therefore God accepts you. That's how it works. That's what's most intuitive to us. But Paul's saying here is, it does not work that way. And here's why it doesn't work that way. Because no one can be justified before God based on observing the law. It's impossible. You're all on the same footing. Everybody is guilty. 
This is what Jesus is showing in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember whenever he's talking about the law, and he keeps saying this thing like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What he's doing there is he's talking about what the teachers of the law in his day had been teaching people. So they've been saying things like, adultery is just the action of adultery. And so therefore, if you avoid adultery, you're fine. You're justified. The same is true with murder. If you haven't killed anyone, then you're right before God. And so what they had done is they had lowered the law so that it could be kept and so that they could say, we're righteous because of this, and you're not. You're on the outside. But what Jesus is saying is, that's not the law. You've heard it said this, but this is what I tell you. Do not commit adultery, the commandment, doesn't just mean the outward action. He says, I tell you, if you have lusted after someone in your heart, you've just committed adultery. The same is true with murder. You've said it's just about the act of killing. No, no, no. It's about anger towards your brother. That's breaking the commandment. So you see, what Jesus was doing was taking the law and raising it to its proper level. And whenever he does that, you know what becomes evident to us all? I'm guilty. You start to see, I'm full of sin. If I start to understand like Jesus taught that the law is not just referring to the actions, but the motivations and the thoughts, our sinfulness goes through the roof. Paul says it this way, Before I saw the commandment, the 10th commandment, do not covet, I didn't know what coveting was. But then whenever I saw in the commandment, do not covet, I found myself coveting absolutely everything. See, that's the nature of the law. It cannot justify you. In fact, what it does is it exposes you. It's like a big spotlight on your heart that shows I'm nowhere close to justifying myself before God. And Paul says, that's where you're supposed to get. That's what he says here. He says, so that the whole world would be accountable to God and every mouth would be silenced. That is, through the law, everyone would see, I've got no standing in myself. I'm silenced. It must be mercy. You see, getting, understanding it this way is tough for us. I mean, we're in a tradition that, that likes to say a lot, we're sinners. I'm a sinner. But what we more often mean by that is I used to be a sinner because we only confess past sins. We never talk like we're presently sinning. We'll only discuss sin whenever we've mastered it, right? We compare ourselves to one another. We look at others. We say, yeah, I might have sin in my life, but I'm not that bad. Yeah, I might have sin in my life, but I don't do that. Or yeah, I might have sin in my life, but I'm in this group, not that group. I'm in this political party, not that party. I'm in this religious faction, not that one. We have all of these different ways of justifying ourselves. The reason is we haven't bought into what Paul has said. Everybody's on the same footing. Everybody's in the same boat. And that's guilty and speechless before God. We've got no standing on our own. No one can be righteous through what they do. It's very counterintuitive to us. So Paul says, relax, you're worse than you know. The rabbit hole goes deeper than you can even imagine. You might have thought you were getting close to getting justified. If I can just get over this sin, then me and God are going to be just right. 
Paul says, no, no, you're not even close. Give it up. Relax, you're worse. The rabbit hole goes deeper than you can even imagine. But the bad news just makes the good news truly wonderful. So Paul says, yeah, you're worse than you realize, but you're more accepted and loved in Christ than you've ever dared dreamed. In fact, you'll never come to the end of it. And that's what he talks about in the rest of the passage. Notice what he says in verse 21. But now. This verse 21 is kind of a pivot for the book. He's been talking before, putting everybody in this same boat, and then he gets to verse 21. The argument changes, and he says, But now. But now that the gospel has come. But now that Christ has come. But now a righteousness from God is revealed. What does he mean by that? Well, righteousness is this state of being right before God. Righteousness is a record of perfection before God. The kind of thing that Paul's saying you can never achieve on your own. And so Paul says, now in the gospel, something gets made known to us. What is that? A righteousness from God that is totally apart from anything that you do. In fact, it's the righteousness of God. It's His record. It's the righteousness of another that is given to us, that's counted to us. It's the righteousness of Christ that is counted to us. That's what it means to be justified. The perfect life that Jesus lived, obeying His Father at every turn, seeking to do His Father's will before His own at every step of His life, always perfectly loving His neighbor in thought, word, and deed, perfect obedience. Perfect righteousness. Only one man. Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, for those who are united to this one man, Jesus Christ, His righteous record gets counted to you. So that as God looks upon the one united to Christ, He says, you are righteous in my sight. Not just pardoned. Righteous. It's not like, just going from being one in debt, a million dollars, to being free of debt. It's from going to be a debtor of a million dollars to being a billionaire in His grace. That's what it means to have His righteousness, this righteousness from God given to us. And so this is justification. What Paul is saying here is that for those who are united to Him, God has looked on the sinner and said, I declare you righteous in my sight forever. It's a once and for all act by God. And it's based on nothing in us. Paul says it over and over and over. It's apart from works. It's apart from anything that we do. It's only received by faith. Martin Luther used to call this in the Protestant Reformation, he would call it both a passive righteousness and an alien righteousness. What do you mean by that? By passive, he meant this. There's absolutely nothing we do to earn it, to merit it, to cause it to come. There's nothing. It's nothing in us. We are only passive. We only receive it. And that's what's meant by receive it by faith alone. But he says it's also an alien righteousness. In other words, it's not ours. It's from outside of us. It's the righteousness of another that gets counted to us. We're clothed in it like a pure, spotless, stainless robe that covers us. So that God now looks on us and says, You, though you are a sinner, 
unrighteous in my sight, I declare you righteous forever. So I would suspect what I've just described is not something that you're hearing for the first time. Maybe for some of you it is. I think for most of us, we've heard this a lot. In fact, this is really the core of Protestantism. This is the core of the gospel, the core of the Reformation. And so I think most of us could probably answer this on a test and articulate it maybe even to someone that doesn't know it or has ever heard it. So we understand it in our head, but so few, so, so infrequent do we actually practice it in our heart. So little does it seep down into the places of our heart. So you say, I think in our day-to-day living, we tend to depend upon our sanctification for our justification. Does that make sense? We tend to depend upon how we're doing, how we're doing in performing religious things that we ought to do, in avoiding particular sins, in in living in a certain way, we, depend, we tend to depend on how we're doing at that to say how acceptable we are before God. So we trust in our religious observance. We say, how am I with God right now? Well, I've been doing better with prayer and I've been reading my Bible more and I'm starting to feel like I'm, I'm right with Him. See, so subtly do we move to trusting and depending upon our sanctification for our justification, but we're getting it backwards. What Paul here is saying is, do you realize this? If you're in union with Christ by faith, do, do you know what that means? God has looked upon you once and for all and said, you are righteous in my sight forever, apart from anything that you do or don't do, based upon the work of another. And so that means day by day, my standing with God, my acceptance before Him is based not on me at all. It's based entirely on the work of another. So day by day, we ought to begin our day with our stand in our justification in Christ alone. Start each day saying, I am right with Him today because of what Christ has done. You see, what that does is it frees you for sanctification. Because sanctification no longer is about performing. It's no longer about earning. It's no longer filled with anxiety whenever you fail. See, this means that we're free to struggle. We're not struggling to be free. That's what Paul's saying here. So, what ought this to do in us? What should believing deeply in our justification, what ought it to do in our life? What are the main implications? You notice what Paul said here in verse 27 is, It's interesting. He begins to move into and say, all right, now this is how it should apply in your life. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? Isn't that an interesting place to go of all the implications he could make? So Paul says, all right, so in light of this, what does that do to your boasting? What does it do to all those areas in your life that you're so proud of your accomplishments? What does it do to all those areas in your life that you say, I'm acceptable because of this. This is my standing. What ought it to do to all of those things? Paul says, it's excluded. It takes it away. If you believe this, if you get this, boasting, it's gone. There's no more grounds for it anymore. It nullifies it. The gospel is the ultimate humbler. Now, why is that? Why is this the case? Verse 28. Paul kind of repeats what he said before. 
For we maintain, this is the reason, no more boasting. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. The reason there's no no more boasting is because in believing our justification, you, you begin to see that everything is by grace. Everything that I have, everything that I can do, everything that I've accomplished, all that I've received, it's all grace. It's all a gift. It's got nothing to do with me. My breath is a gift. And whenever you begin to see that, you've got no grounds for boasting. You've also got no reason for boasting. See, what tends to happen in all of these areas that we try to justify ourselves, that we try to say, I matter because I'm good here, because I know how to do this, because of my performance here. What happens in those areas is whenever we're successful in that, we're filled with pride and self-righteousness. Look down on others that aren't as good as us. But then if you're not living up to it, it puts you in despair. You know, it, it makes you despair of life. It makes you feel like a failure. And it makes you, and that usually happens whenever you run into somebody that's better than you in this area. It makes you despair. But what Paul's saying here is that once you get this, it's all removed. All of your performance is removed. Because if the God of heaven has looked on you and said, you are righteous forever in my sight. Why do you have to boast? Why do you have to get somebody else to say you're justified? Or to make a name for yourself or to be controlled by what others think? You see, if God's declaration is real to you every day, you don't have to boast anymore. You don't have to try to control what other people think of you. You don't have to try to justify yourself. That's what Paul's saying. So what ought this to do in us as a community? Imagine what our community of faith would look like if this truth penetrated further. How would it change us in our relation to one another in the church? Well, as we started out, we said, you know, this, this boasting, justifying myself and everything that I do, that it's just everywhere in my life. And you see, what, what ends up happening through that is in a community, it, it separates us. It becomes a barrier. We hold each other at arm's length. We're trying, to, we're trying to look good in front of one another, to hide, to wear masks. So the couple that's been fighting on the way to church, they walk in the door and they've got the smile. How you doing? Great. Wonderful. Or you almost killed your kid the night before. But yet you come and you're just like, everything's good. Look at this precious little children right here sitting with me here. Or you're struggling deeply with some some addiction, and yet you come and you just act like everything's great. You see, whenever we're boasting and trying to be justified by what we do and what we have, it separates us from one another. We're not real. We keep each other at arm's length. It's disunity. And you're preoccupied with yourself. And whenever you're preoccupied with yourself, you cannot care for other people. But imagine what would happen is this truth of our being declared righteous in Christ, what if it penetrated just a little bit further? I suspect we'd be a people that wouldn't have to be so controlled by by what one another thinks. We wouldn't hold each other at arm's length. Instead, we'd be transparent. We'd be open with one another. You come to church and they say, how you doing? You say, you know, honestly, I'm struggling. It's been hard. And they would say, oh, no. They would say... I'm sorry to hear that. 
Tell me what's going on. And we would be the kind of community that really loved one another, that really had true friendship with one another, that that would be like what Paul says, consider one another's better than yourself. That's what it would produce. And I think finally, it would bring joy. You know, in the book of Galatians, the church that Paul's writing to, they're struggling with this very thing. They're getting all caught up in what they're doing for their justification. They're getting sanctification and justification mixed up. And you know, one of the main questions he asks them, I think it's just brilliant what he asks them. He says, what happened to all your joy? See, the first time I was with you and I brought the gospel that you're justified by faith alone in Christ, you were brimming with joy and love for one another. But now, what happened to all your joy? Where did it go? And so I'd ask us that this morning. What's happened to your joy? Paul says, whenever you see that you have been declared righteous in the sight of the Father, that is enough to produce joy for the rest of your life. And so you've got to start every day by taking your stand upon that. So in talking about how this would change us as a community, that's really what the Lord's table, the Lord's supper is to do for us. We tend to think of communion as just something between me and Jesus. But the scriptures say it's that, absolutely. But it's also something that makes us one as a people. It makes us one because we come next to each other. We're watching each other come and take, take of the Lord. And how does it do that? How does it make us one? Well, it pictures one thing. In the sacraments, one thing is front and center. What is that? The sacrificial atonement of Christ. Your justification. So I would encourage you as you come to the table this morning, this is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to drive the truth of the gospel deeper into your heart. So as you come... And you take, say, I am righteous in the sight of the Father because of the work of Christ. As we come to the table, there's only one way to come. And it's understanding what Paul said at the beginning of this passage. So as we come, we're going to begin with confession. We're going to pray together. There's a hymn of confession, a prayer of confession in your bulletin. So we're going to pray that together so that our hearts are in this right place. Kind of puts us in the same place that verse 20 does so that verse 21 is electrifying to us. So let's go before...